Well, we will get into 1 Thessalonians today. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to conclude our study of this letter, 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be looking at uh, the benediction here, chapter 5, verses uh, 23 to 28. Uh, we were able to study benediction a little bit last Sunday as we just dove into the first verse. And just by way of reminder, uh, as I mentioned last week, as the Apostle Paul closes this letter to this dear congregation that had been in the Lord for maybe six months, Paul uses the typical convention for a Greek Roman letter that would have a kind of closing that would be a formula that they would use, much like we do today as we sign off on our letters. Paul adapts that same conventional style, except rather than just following that formal way of concluding a letter, Paul packs these final words with more profound theology. And in fact, as we look at this conclusion to his letter in verses 23 to 28, we really see Paul has dealt with in this letter. We see him dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. We see him touching once again on the truth of the second coming of Christ. We see him referencing the sovereignty of God. We see him emphasizing the unity of the church, and we see him then close with a final reminder of the necessity of grace. These are all themes that Paul has treated at length in his letter, and now as he signs off, this is no mere shallow wording. This is from his heart. This is a summation of that which matters most to Paul. And as he concludes, as we've looked at already, a basic outline of our final verses in in this letter, we see this. Paul gives powerful consolation in verses 23 and 24. And then in verses 25 to 6, he personal commands that summarize some of the key exhortations that he has already given in the letter. And then in verse 28, he gives a precious commendation as he signs off. Let's look at these verses and and then we'll dig into what the Lord has for us here. Paul writes, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself... Sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's begin with a short review of what we looked at last week in verse 23. Paul gives this prayer. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We noticed as we looked at that that prayer that Paul focuses on, his praying here on one main idea, and that is the idea of sanctification. Notice he uses that very verb in the first half of this 
this uh, compound prayer. It's, it's a prayer that is split into two pieces that basically uh, parallel each other. And in the first half, he references this idea through the use of the verb to sanctify. And remember, we looked at this last week, and we've looked at this in depth when we studied chapter. To sanctify means not only to remove something from the mundane or something from a realm of sin, it also means to consecrate. It has a twofold nature to it. And so when Paul prays for sanctification, when he uses this verb, he is emphasizing that dual focus removal, and consecration. And he echoes that same verb with the verb in the second half, to be preserved. And it's much more than just preservation in the current state, but as Paul writes this verb, he is thinking of preservation in perfection. He is talking about preservation of the spirit, soul, and body at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referring to that final act that will be done when we in our totality will be made perfect. His focus here, moreover, word entirely, and then mirrors that again in the second half of this prayer with the verb complete, or with the word complete. He is focused here on totality. He is focused here on perfection. He is focused here on completeness, complete holiness. And notice, as he prays this prayer, he directs it to God the Father. Notice how he describes him. The God of peace. The God of peace. The one who alone can bring about this kind of sanctification. He is called the God of peace. And this prayer is also directly connected to the Son. He references that him in the second half as he references this coming the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul believed would very likely come. And he knew that according to the prophetic calendar of redemption, that this moment, the coming of Christ, could happen at any time. Nothing more remained to be fulfilled until Christ would come. And so Paul is driving to this important moment in history And his love is expressed for these Thessalonians in that he prays for their complete, entire, total sanctification at that moment of the coming of Christ. To summarize this doctrine of sanctification, let me quote from from biblical doctrine. In that textbook, we read this, quote, In sanctification, God, working especially by the Holy Spirit, separates the believer unto himself and makes him increasingly holy, progressively transforming him image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, by subduing the power of sin in his life and by enabling him to bear the fruit of obedience in his life. So again, as I emphasized last week, recognize Paul's focus in his praying. This is what mattered to Paul, and it mattered so much to Paul that this is what filled his praying. This is no mere formality. This is, this is what motivated Paul to get on his knees. This is what motivated Paul to, to pray without ceasing as he thought about the Christians scattered through the, the world at that time, and particularly as he thought about this congregation who 
came to believe in Christ through Paul's own instrumentality, his deepest concern, his last will and testament, so to speak, for their sanctification at that moment in Christ's return. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification, it, it's important to emphasize uh, the, the, the right biblical understanding because many errors exist uh, about this doctrine. Now, when we look at Paul's teaching on this topic, both in 1 Thessalonians and elsewhere in all of his letters, we can construct this understanding of, of the doctrine of sanctification. And in many ways, you could call this the doctrine of the Christian life. First of all, According to Paul, all men, as they are in their natural state, are in bondage to sin. All men are in bondage to sin. We could look at a text like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, which describes mankind, and Paul puts himself in this very category when he said, them, the natural man, natural men, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the natural life. That's who we are without Christ, without Christ's supernatural work of regeneration in our lives. But that leads us to the next reality of the Christian life and Paul's teaching on the doctrine of sanctification. There is a moment that changes everything. And it is the moment of regeneration. It is the moment of being made alive. We could read that even in Ephesians chapter 2, how Paul goes on to say, but God made us alive. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and following. God made us alive. And in that moment of being made alive, rescued from our dead bondage to sin, in that moment, God canceled the dominion of sin over our lives. He broke the chains. Before regeneration, we were captive to sin and could do nothing except sin. And as the prophet Jeremiah says, even our righteous attempts were filthy. Everything, all our motivation, even for good moral acts, were filled with selfish desires. And we could do nothing else. But Paul says in the moment of that regeneration, he makes us free. You could look at Romans chapter 6 as well. You could read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. We, we heard those verses this morning from Pastor John. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. Notice how Paul first the natural man. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to describe all kinds of different unrighteous lifestyles. But then he says, such were some of you. What regeneration did was to cancel out those identities. Those sinful identities are canceled because the bondage to sin has been broken. And so Paul goes on to say this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were sanctified. There Paul describes sanctification as a completed act. 
There he describes it as something that has been complete. You were sanctified, he says to the Thessalonians. He doesn't say you are being sanctified. There in that text, Paul to one of the three aspects of sanctification. That is the sanctification that we can describe as positional sanctification. That God in the moment of regeneration indeed does on his own power according to his own sovereign work. He removes us from under sin's bondage and dedicates us to himself. That is what happens to us at the moment of our conversions. We don't even necessarily feel some tingling. We don't feel ourselves being physically moved anywhere necessarily. But this happens to us at that moment, God's work of positional sanctification, an accomplished work that happens there at the moment of regeneration. Now, what that act, that first stage of sanctification does, is it sets us out on a whole new course of now for the first time, because of what God has done for us in possessional, positional sanctification, now the battle with sin begins. Before our regeneration, whatever battle we had was not truly against sin. It might have been against the consequences of sin, but it was not truly against sin, and it certainly was not for God's glory. But now this regeneration, this positional sanctification, begins a whole new lifestyle, that those who are truly regenerate now for the first time feel a true righteous hatred to their own sin and a new desire to fight against it and to replace that sin with Christ-likeness. And so we call this next stage progressive sanctification. It is a process. It is not achieved in one moment. In fact, it is a process that will take place for our entire lives as we are here on this earth. This is the process that we experience and that we're involved in, that we participate in as we as we, as we achieve through the grace of God two important responsibilities. Number one, it re requires a mortification of sin. Remember that aspect of separation. And so in our lives, as we live our Christian lives day to day, we, we work hard by God's grace and empowerment at mortifying sin, of separating ourselves from sin's practice. It also involves the second element, which is consecration. Remember, separation and consecration. Here in this process, we are involved not only in the mortification of sin, the separation of its practice from us, but we are involved in consecration as well. We are involved in Christ and knowing Christ and, and cultivating his virtues in our own lives. That is a a practice that each one of us who are believers know very well. That is a, a difficult practice. Paul describes it as a battle. It's not, for, it's not some easy thing to accomplish. In fact, Paul speaks of it in very serious terms of desiring to do what is right and, and failing and, and, and not wanting to do what he does. And yet the battle must go on, Paul teaches and so, for example, in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he expresses or, or describes this battle with these terms. He says, therefore, having these promises, he's referring to believers, 
Believers who have received the promise already of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Having these promises, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is a process that we all experience as believers throughout our entire lives. And then comes a third stage of sanctification, and it's the stage that Paul has in mind here in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. It is the stage of finally removing sin's presence entirely. Removing the vestiges of sin from our lives completely. This is that moment when we see Christ. Now, as Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, that moment may come, moment may come when Christ comes to gather his church. And in that moment, at the coming of Christ, we who are alive, we who are members of his body, we will see him and we will be like him. We will see him, as John says in 1 John 3 verse 2, and we will be like him. For those who die in Christ, that moment of perfective sanctification when sin is completely done away with will be experienced when they wake up on that side of eternity. The moment of seeing Christ. And that moment of seeing Christ for us as believers is so crucial because at that moment, all, all vestiges of sin will be done away with once and for all, leading to a glorified life for eternity, a life of complete Christ-likeness. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 29, you remember that precious text where Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice God's purpose in all of this. God's purpose in salvation, in saving you, is to make many like his son. His purpose, his whole objective in this progress of redemption is to create a people who are completely conformed in their humanity to the humanity of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. That's what his purpose is. And that's what Paul prays for here in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Because Paul believed that this coming of Christ could happen at any time, he's not assuming that they're all going to die. Instead, he, he is assuming that they may indeed live at the coming of Christ. And Paul's prayer was that in that moment, they would experience that to which this whole chain of, of redemptive acts would lead to perfect Christ-likeness in body, soul, and spirit. Now, with respect to sanctification and, and, and setting up for verse 24, it's important to consider some 
some, some errors that people have in thinking through the doctrination. Let me give you three of them. There's many uh, errors with it, but let me summarize or point out the three main errors with respect to the doctrine of sanctification. The first one is this. Some believe in what we could call a division of duties. Some believe that God accomplishes justification through Christ's work on the cross, but then he hands over the the, the reins, so to speak, to the believer and says, okay, now you do the rest. I've done justification. I've pronounced you righteous. I pronounced you just on the basis of Christ's work, but now... Now it's your responsibility. Now you must kick in and do your part. And so the idea is that God accomplishes justification, but the believer is responsible for sanctification. That's it. And that is heresy. That is heresy. That is not the biblical teaching. In fact, it is based on a a deceptive kind of man-centered teaching that believes that God does the first part, but we carry the baton across the finish line. And that is a man-made heresy. A second error related to sanctification is this. It's, It's what we could call shared responsibility. Now, let me just let me define this carefully. All right, what do I mean by this? Well, there are some who believe, well, we're not going to fall into the error of the first category. Instead, we'll be a little more spiritual. And so we will assert that God contributes his half to sanctification, and the believer contributes his half. So 50-50. And, you know, that sounds better than it all in my hands, so I I'll recognize that, okay, I've, I've just got 50% in my hands. God's going to do his part. He always does. But I have my 50%, and if I don't do 50%, sanctification isn't going to happen. Or if you're even a little more spiritual, you say, well, maybe God has 55%, and I have the lesser. And it sounds like humility, but it's not. It's not humility you're still taking credit for 45% of your own sanctification. That's not humility. There is another error related to sanctification, a third one, and it's a little more complex. And and we have to think carefully, and verse 24 is going to help us in this, but it's the error of what we could call equal ultimacy equal ultimacy. Now, what I mean by this is there will be some who will say, well, we can't quantify percentages. We can't put sanctification into a pie chart. We can't say it's 50-50. We can't say it's 55-45 or 70-30. Instead, getting rid of all the numbers, we'll just say this, that both God and the believer are equally ultimately responsible for sanctification. Now, that may sound very close to the truth because the believer is responsible for sanctification. Turn for just a moment back to what we studied in chapter 4. Again, reading in verse 1, so that we capture 
the seriousness, seriousness with which Paul writes these words, chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, chapter 4, verse 1 begins the section in the letter as Paul deals with what was lacking in the Thessalonians' faith. And he writes this, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk to please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul is, Paul is putting his words here on the exact same status as the words of Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he immediately defines it this way, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul is clearly putting responsibility on the part of the Thessalonians. We read the same idea back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We could read it also in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is serious. And no one can honestly look at Paul's letter or his letters, and say that the believer does not have responsibility. There are some, of course, who do that, and they misconstrue very clear teaching. Paul is clear. In fact, even in this chapter, chapter 4, as he deals with this teaching on, on sexual immorality, he goes on to say, to emphasize the seriousness that is at stake here, he goes on to say that Jesus is the avenger. And that he brings recompense to those who fail to adhere to this instruction. So the believer is responsible. But what's the problem with this idea of equal ultimacy? What's the problem with believing that both God and man are equally, fully, ultimately responsible for sanctification? The problem is, is that that doesn't fit with Scripture. That does not fit with what Paul himself is about to say. Our responsibility is certain. Our responsibility is definite. The will of God for our lives is very clear. But we are not ultimately responsible for our sanctification. And if you are thoughtful as you look at your life, you have to be thankful for this reality. Notice what Paul writes in verse 24. Immediately after this prayer, he gives this wonderful consolation. The same one who said to the Thessalonians with the authority of Jesus Christ, who said, this is God's will, your sanctification, the same one who wrote that and emphasized that reality all the way from chapter 4 to the verses that immediately preceded this prayer, the same one who wrote that, ends his letter with wonderful consolation. Notice what he says, verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. In a remarkably abrupt, Paul reveals the outcome of his intercessory prayer. This is an amazing thing. Paul is praying 
he's beseeching God, the God of peace, that he would do this work in the lives of the Thessalonians. But notice for Paul, this, this isn't a problem. This isn't a contradiction. Immediately after his prayer, he already gives the answer. He's praying exactly according to the will of God when he prays for their sanctification because he knows God will accomplish this prayer. In fact, when we look at the text, it's very emphatic. In English, as it is in the original, the very first word that comes is out of its normal order. We don't normally talk faithful as he. We normally say he is faithful. But the translators have sought to bring out this emphasis because in the original, Paul does the same thing, putting all the emphasis on this first term, full, is he. Now, when we look at this, this attribute or this perfection of faithfulness, what are we talking about? One theologian puts it this way, and I think this is a, a really helpful definition he writes this, quote, God's faithfulness is his reliability, his determination to fulfill all that he promises. His faithfulness is grounded in his absolute truth. God is perfectly sincere in all his undertakings and dependable in discharging all his engagements. He is faithful. This faithfulness of God, which Paul also attributes to Jesus Christ, this faithfulness refers to this concept of reliability, character, and according to the promises that he has made. God will always act according to the promises that he has made. And so if he has promised eternal life, if he has promised that he will make you like Christ, that promise will not go unfulfilled. God's character rests upon that truth. In fact, notice how Paul describes Jesus here, again, emphasizing this concept of promise or the verbal activity involved in salvation. Faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he who calls you. Jesus, or, or the, the Father, is defined as he who calls you. A reference to the previous descriptions of God's redemptive activity that are, that are found in 1 Thessalonians. Look back, for example, at chapter 12, verses 11 and 2. As Paul wraps up a section there describing Paul's own ministry, he talks about there how he's like a father. Paul was like a father to the, to the Thessalonians. But he, he records these words which directly relate to what Paul is saying here in verse 24. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, we read this. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Later in chapter 4, verse 7, the same terminology is used where Paul says in that section on sanctification, Paul writes, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but God has called us in sanctification. The, the emphasis that Paul is making is that God has called us. There's an emphasis on that 
verbal activity. He has said, come to me. He has said, come to me for life. He has said, come to me for forgiveness of sins. Come to me for grace and peace. Come to me for mercy. Come to me to be made like Jesus and experience the joy of eternal bliss. Come. And God's words will not return empty. As Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's what he says in the second half of verse 24, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul connects the first assertion to a necessary and inevitable consequence. God has called, and that one who is called is faithful, and therefore the consequence that is necessary and inevitable is that he will also do it. He also will do it. If he calls, he will bring it to pass. We see here a a very uh, unbreakable connection here between God's call expressed in the word of the gospel that he gives effectually to all whom he has chosen. And then you have connected to that the achievements. Now think of this. We see this even within 1 Thessalonians Going back all the way to chapter 1, verse 4, Paul's God. Why? Because of what God was doing in the lives of those Thessalonians. And then Paul establishes the basis for his confidence in their conversion by saying these words. Just as he has chosen you. God has chosen believers. God chose those Thessalonians, 1 verse 4. And then in his calling, his his choice of them, he then called them to enter his kingdom. He then made known to them the will that he has for them, namely their Christ-likeness. And because he has done that, he is faithful and he will make sure that his word is fulfilled. Therefore, when we think about the doctrine of sanctification, we must understand this. It's not equal ultimacy. When we talk about the doctrine of sanctification, we are talking about one who is ultimately responsible. One who empowers. One who gives the grace and strength. Just one who brings it to pass And it is God. He is the one. One who has written much about the doctrine of sanctification is a theologian by the name of John Owen. And in one of his books entitled On the Mortification of Sin, he gives some helpful comments that tie in exactly with what we're dealing with here. He writes, for example, quote, mortification of sin from a self strength, carried on by ways of self unto the end of self-righteousness, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. In other words, what he's saying there is if you think that you are responsible for your sanctification and that when there is growth, 
that you have achieved it, understand you are falling into the lies of man-made religion. He goes on to say this, the use of means for obtaining of peace, that is our growth, our spiritual growth, the use of means for the obtaining of peace is ours. We have an instrumentality to to play in this pursuit of sanctification. The use of means is ours. But as he goes on to say, the bestowing of it is God's prerogative. He says this a little later on. He says, mortification must be a supply of grace. We ourselves cannot do it. You see, God is the ultimate agent of our growth. He is the ultimate agent of positional sanctification. He is the ultimate agent of progressive sanctification. And he is the ultimate agent of perfective sanctification. In one of the uh, canons of Dort in the 1600s, there's a wonderful section on the perseverance of the saints. And I want to read to you several of these sections, these articles that relate to this text in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24. The canons of Dort read as follows. Hence, the body of sin and the infirmities of the flesh that we still carry with us. Hence, spring daily sins of infirmity. And hence, spots adhere to the best works of the saints, which furnish them with constant matter for humiliation before God and flying for refuge to Christ crucified for mortifying the flesh more and more by the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of piety and for pressing forward to the goal of perfection till being at length delivered from this body of death, they are brought to reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. By reason of these remains of indwelling sin and the temptations of sin and of the world, those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to the But God is faithful, who having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them herein even to the end. That is the precious consolation. That is the precious consolation that comes to all those who are struggling in this battle of sin. Indeed, as the canons of Dort describe, there are infirmities. And and if you are one of those who today is feeling the infirmity, this text, this consolation, verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5, is for you. Again, I've said it before, if you don't feel the infirmity, if you don't feel the battle, if this doesn't make sense to you, the consolation who weep over their state. This is for those who groan and express those words, I desire to do these things and I don't do them, and then what I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this? Well, who will rescue you is the one who's faithful. And he will bring it to completion. 
One commentator said this, it is profoundly satisfying believer that in the last resort, what matters is not his feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on him. Indeed, this is wonderful consolation to the soul. This is the ultimate basis of our assurance. I'm saved. Indeed, there are a lot of things to point to in life. We point to the changes that have taken place. We point to perhaps that vivid moment of conversion that some of us experienced very dramatically. We can point to new desires that we never experienced before. We can point even to a, a, a love for Scripture that continues to grow. But at the end of the day, there is only one answer that serves as the ultimate basis for our assurance, and it's this, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. In fact, there's that precious hymn originally written by Ada Habershon but a hundred years ago. We're going to sing it later on as we close. He will hold me fast. These words are so appropriate. It's been recently re-modified in recent years, and I'll read a few stanzas here, and we'll sing them later. It goes as follows. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises will be bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that God will do it. Well, there are a few additional words that Paul gives as he says his goodbye to these Thessalonian believers. Let's turn to them and cover them quickly. In verses 25 to 27, Paul gives a series of three commands, three personal commands. And they are, again, not superficial. They have a, a role to play and summarize the issues that Paul was dealing with in the congregation. First of all, he calls upon them to pray for us. And, and this, is, this is noteworthy. Immediately after Paul prayed for them, such a lofty prayer that they would be sanctified entirely, turns around and says, pray for us. Pray for us. And you cannot help but recognize Paul's humility in this because as, as, as Paul is, is praying for them and immediately turns around and says, pray for us, you can't miss that he's asking the same prayer on his own behalf for himself, for, for Sylvanus and for Timothy. Pray the same thing for us. It's probably also a reference, an invitation 
for them to continue in partnership in the ministry because often when Paul calls upon his his beloved friends to pray for him, it's wrapped up with the ministry challenges that Paul faced. Back in chapter 2, verse 18, for example, we read that Satan had posed obstacles to Paul to get back to Thessalonica, and Paul couldn't. And even there in Corinth, from where Paul writes this letter, there are many obstacles there in Corinth, and Paul invites them to pray for him. It is a remarkable expression of humility. This great apostle to the Gentiles is acknowledging his own feebleness, his own need. Pray for us. Secondly, he gives this command to greet the brethren. This is, again, no superficial request. He's not saying go mindlessly through the congregation and say hello. There's more to it. And this is probably a reference to the fact that now Paul is addressing this to the leadership of the church. He says, greet all the brethren. Remember, the congregation would not have all been literate. The leaders would have received this letter from a courier. And Paul now directs his exhortation to them and says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, it was common in that day that good friends and family members would, would kiss each other. It was a, a common way of expressing identity, belonging, closeness. And Paul takes that same customary action and again fills it with theological profundity. Notice he calls it a holy kiss. This is not something that is merely cultural. This has deep spiritual significance. Deep spiritual significance. And, and what this holy kiss, this greeting did was to make in a concrete, manifest way a mark of identity and belonging. Notice he says, greet all the brethren. All those who are in Christ. All those who are in Christ without distinction. No partiality. All of them were be, to be treated as members of the spiritual. This was a call to unity. This was a call to, to equality within the ministry of the church, of the ministry of the one and others. Greet all the brethren with this holy kiss. Not just some of them, not just favorites, not just those who are mature, but everyone. One writer, one commentator says this, what would be most remarkable about this expression of mutual Christian love within the believing community is the radical crossing of social boundary lines that would have been involved, not only between Jew and Gentile, but also between rich and poor, slave and free. In the world outside the church, that would not have happened. Jew and Gentile greeting each other with a kiss? No way. Slave and poor? No way. Barbarian and Greek? No way. But Paul says, you know what? In the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, the point of this, obviously, is not the actual kiss. And Paul describes it as holy. And certainly within a context like ours today, we have to be very careful with those things. Certain contexts, they still do this in the church. I remember my early years in Russia and being introduced to this uh, practice, which was uh, a little bit, uh, for, for me, growing up as a farmer in Canada, guys don't kiss. That's just no way. 
And then being in a context where many times unexpectedly getting a, uh, a kiss from another man. And sometimes not even just on the cheeks. So some practice that and for the Russian church that was to mark this very same thing. But of course, we're careful with this, but we have to find the ways as Paul commanded the Thessalonian church to express this same kind of unity, that there are no divisions in the body of Christ. We're one family who have been God-taught, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, we have been God-taught to love one another. Show it, Paul says. Then he gives a third command. He says, have this letter read. Again, he is addressing this to the leadership, and he's commanding them under very strong language here. The verb to adjure means to put them under oath that they were to take the contents of this letter and not just take it for themselves, but communicate it to the entire congregation, to uh, assemble the congregation and read these words to them. You know, Paul recognizes something very important here. He recognizes that his words, that which he wrote, had a binding authority over the consciences of every member of the congregation. And by doing this, Paul places his own writings at the very same level as the Old Testament scriptures. Remember what would happen just as it did in the synagogue, there would be the regular reading of scripture, the Old Testament scripture in the synagogue, but in the newly formed church, there would be the practice of reading the scriptures. Paul alludes to that, for example, in 1st Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where he tells Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. What in those worship congregational settings was that the Scriptures were to be read, and Paul says, now also read my words. So we see here some very practical commands, tying the contents of his letter and giving instruction as to how those, how those contents were to be conveyed to the church. Probably even there is a hint at those in the congregation. We, we read of them in chapter 4 as well. Those who were rebellious, those who were lazy and caused problems within the congregation, who were busybodies. And perhaps this is a reference to the fact that they needed to hear from Paul and his words would do that. Finally, there is a closing commendation. We've seen the powerful personal commands in verses 25 to 27, and now a precious commendation, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is Paul's standard sign-off in all his letters it expresses Paul's favorite term, one of the great concepts that we find in Scripture, the concept of grace. What is grace? Grace is God's favor shown through Christ in all its freeness. Grace is at the foundation of verse 24. 
Faithful is he, and he will also do it. Why? Because he's full of grace. Grace is the love of God that is at work in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinful men and the salvation of those men in its entirety. Grace. Paul ends all his letters, except Romans, with this term, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He deals with at length in all of his letters. We read, for example, in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And that grace is responsible not only for bringing men and women to faith in Jesus Christ, that grace is also fundamental to bringing them to Christ-likeness, to bringing them to the end of this process of redemption. Well, as we wrap up our time in this letter and as we wrap up this morning, a few implications First, let me address you as believers, those who have truly come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, profess his death and resurrection, who have come to him for forgiveness and eternal life. Rest, dear Christian, in your refuge. Rest in that refuge. Indeed, there is a place and a necessity to emphasize your duties, your responsibilities. And we must do that, especially in a world where licentiousness is so prevalent, especially in a time when even in the church, licentiousness is so prevalent. But there is also a time, a very important time, one that is to be consistent in our lives when we rest. We rest in our refuge. And over and over and over again, we come back to that precious statement, faithful is he. Even when I fail, Even when I stumble, even when I fall, faithful is he. Let me address those here who have not already come to Christ, who are still under the bondage of sin. As I said, at at this point in, in your life, at this moment, the promise of verse 24 which is the fulfillment of the prayer of verse 23, the promise does not relate to you right now. The promise of entire, complete, total sanctification when you will come to enjoy Christ-likeness and and love Him eternally and be with Him forever, that promise is not for you in your sinful state. You have to do what the Thessalonians had done Back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, they turned their backs on idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for him from heaven. This is the call to you. Flee to this refuge. Yes, it will include a new battle with sin. It will include a painful life of struggle. It will not be a nice walk through a rose garden. There will be challenges. There will be infirmities. There will be problems, disappointments. Even your best attempts will still fall short. But, but, he will hold you fast. And he will bring that work to completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this precious promise. So grateful for your faithfulness because we are not. We're so thankful that salvation is in your hands and not in ours. We're thankful that the outcome has been determined by you and not dependent upon our feeble attempts. We're thankful that you base this great work of salvation on the perfect work of Christ and his obedience and what he accomplished. And you don't base it upon our partial obedience and our failures. And we pray like in Mark 9, verse 24, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Help us come to glory in your great work and to rest in it fully. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ.